0: Welcome to Chinchilla Squeaks. A few quick updates ahead of the show here before I get to some links and then my interview with Amanda Brock from Oakland, UK. There's obviously quite a lot happening in tech at the moment, so I should address a few of the elephants in the room. Firstly, KubeCon coverage. I'm working my way through that. There was obviously one last episode, but I'm getting through some others and there'll be some video versions, but they're taking a little bit longer to put together. Because some of the audio and video went out of sync, and also I want to re-record some of the demo parts of the conversations I had. And that's all going to take a little bit of time, but I'm getting there. So obviously WWDC is happening at the moment, and there's a lot that has already interested me. But I haven't finished going through the keynote myself. And then I'd like to go a little bit deeper with some of the, the news, actually. Not just, oh, they announced this, but go into some of the developer sessions myself not go to them but you know watch some of them and try to develop a bit of deeper content for you my more technical audience around how they'll be useful and what you could do with them beyond the marketing headlines so watch out for that finally i am at open infra Con. it's actually in berlin so i'm <laughs> i'm recording this in my usual place but i have been darting backwards and forwards to the event, and there'll be some coverage coming from that too in the next few weeks. So a lot going on, actually. But I would like to cover a few links, and then we'll get to my interview with Amanda Brock from Open UK, which is a very interesting interview, so please hold on to have a listen to that. First, uh, an article on Wired from Paul Ford. Uh, I've seen this pop up in a few places and I really loved the discussion. The form element created the modern web. Was it a big mistake? (laughs) And this article is is quite an interesting trip through history of web development and... um, Yeah, the trip down memory lane about how we got here, how the internet ended up with the form element and kind of what it was initially intended for. And... What it has become, <laughs> and what it has become is, of course, probably not what we wanted it to be, and has it ruined the internet? Has this these humble, I remember creating form forms for contact and, and things like that, and now they've become e-commerce and Facebook and comment boxes and all these various things. So much of interaction on the internet is basically glorified form elements, and what has it done? to the internet. (laughs) And what would it be like without it? I mean, the article poses the question that would the internet be better without it, but the internet would probably be very static without it too. It's the classic adage of you can't blame the inventor of a hammer for someone using a hammer to hurt somebody. It's not what the hammer was designed for. And again, classic with engineers, just because people have used and abused the form element doesn't mean there's anything inherently wrong with the form element. But it's a really interesting read, and I really liked it. It's from the June issue, but it's also on the website, and I strongly encourage you to have a look at that. Another one from MIT Technology Review uh, by uh, Zey Yang. This is just at the end of May. How censoring China's open source coders might backfire. Uh, GitHub has already had some issues with uh, I think everything being blocked, actually. And now Giti, which is a Chinese competitor, or equivalent, I suppose, has also had quite a lot locked and blocked. I guess because the the the, the concern of the Chinese government is that uh, people can collaborate on things and um, get free ideas. I, I've never actually tried using Giti from outside of China. I've never had any need to, but I assume it's possible. Um, and what this could do to China's competitive advantage, I guess, as China becomes more and more sort of closed. I mean, they have their own homegrown economy, which is very large and is very, very, um, very, you know, it could sustain itself in some respects, but it will start to lose its edge if it only ever looks inside itself, I suppose. Uh, And with something like open source software, I've seen there's been a lot of Chinese contributors to a lot of major infrastructure, especially projects. And I I think there's a concern that just as that was expanding, things like this will mean that um, they get locked out of that conversation and that discussion. What will that mean? Will they go elsewhere because they get frustrated? Will it mean that uh, these projects get no input from China? Will it mean that China just creates its own alternatives, which is good and bad for everybody, depending how you look at things? And it's really interesting to see that you know freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of collaboration, even on something like code, is so political in in some countries. Yeah, it was really interesting. Again, everything's interesting, otherwise it wouldn't be on the show. I know, I realise I use that word a lot. But um, just to get an idea of, you know, how such a large economy uh, treats these things and, and how uh, a huge sector of user base is is doesn't work the same way as we might be used to in in the West. And finally, a little different, but it, it caught my attention. This was something on CN Traveller from Alyssa Gary, actually from January. I'm not sure why it only came up on my list a growing number of eu countries are proposing bans on regional flights where a train route exists um this has been very relevant uh it's actually i find it strange that this is from january and i was reading it as it was more recent than that because there's been some more recent news that have sort of fed into to part of this and so France is already about to do this. Germany is considering it. These regulations, these levies, whatever you want to call it, the approaches are different and maybe it might even be Europe-wide on if if it is possible to get from A to B, generally domestically by train, then flying uh, aside from various stipulations like connecting to international flights or whatever shouldn't be allowed or should be strongly discouraged um, this is complicated, especially with that international flight connection caveat. I don't know how you prove that. Um, and I think some of what I read here was saying that up to six hours by train should be the preferred method. It's all very well and good. In France, I think the train services are better in many European countries, including Germany. I hate to say and hate to break any stereotypes you may have. Trains are and generally, actually, not as good as you may think. There's frequently de- delays. They frequently are overcrowded. They frequently cannot cope with demand. And this relates to some current news in that um, there's now this nine euro ticket for the next three months to sort of bring down um, cost of living increases and related to the the Ukraine war. Um, and of course, as predicted, this has caused a massive. Glut of passengers and not enough demand, coinciding with summer holidays as well. In fact, in some respects, launching it in June was a terrible idea. But it's just a you know, that's the nature of the timing, I suppose. Um And so it already shows that the train systems can't really cope with current demand. And if you now increase that demand, then there needs to be more investment in those. And will that happen? And equally even short-distance trains can be quite expensive. Uh, Ryanair and EasyJet low-cost carriers are often cheaper than trains. Um, and just forcing people to do it, I don't know if that will encourage people any more or less. What What is the end goal here? Is the end goal to reduce travel or is the end goal to switch travel? And to switch, you kind of need to also, you know, there's the carrot and the stick. The carrot is you shouldn't do this. Sorry, that's the wrong way around. The stick is, you shouldn't do this. The carrot is, well, but trains are now affordable and better and more frequent and pleasant. And that's not always the case. And this is just France and Germany. If we get outside of these countries, um, train systems in many European countries are really not that well connected. And what about, I mean, for example, for me to go from here to Poznan, okay, Poznan doesn't actually have an airport, but you know, I'm just indicating that there are Or actually, Berlin to Prague is a good example. It's four hours by train. I could fly. I don't actually think that's a good choice, but uh, (laughs) I'm not even sure if there is a direct flight. But, you know, what about these short-distance cross-border trips? How will that work? And these sorts of things. It's when this kind of European uh, ideal doesn't always meet the reality. And I just found this article interesting in that, um, you know, travel at the moment is a nightmare, flying and train for various reasons. I've had many trips in the past couple of months and they've all been horrendous for various pressured reasons. And I kind of wonder, you know, just because you have regulation, it it doesn't change reality. And what's that going to mean? Good idea. And I like to generally actually use trains myself. Up to eight hours, I will do, if it's a good possibility. Like when I I went to Krakow for an event and it's a seven-hour train journey. It's actually very affordable. I did it. Um, it got delayed, <laughs> got very uncomfortable after a while, uh, very hot, uh, no internet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, not that there's internet on planes, but planes are quicker. You kind of get my point. I think the train experience needs to be upgraded a bit as well. It needs to sort of come in tandem to make it uh, viable. Uh, anyway, a little bit uh, off topic from my normal discussions, but because I travel a lot, it intrigued me. <laughs> now, on the subject of Europe... Um, or not, as the case may be, this was a little bit of a KubeCon-related talk. I uh, was reminded of the organization at KubeCon, and we arranged a chat just afterwards. This is uh, Amanda Brock of the very, very interesting um, Open UK. Enjoy. My guest on this Chinchilla Squeaks is Amanda Brock from Open UK, plus Furry Friend, which... uh, if this, is, this is audio, so you're not seeing what I'm seeing. <laughs> 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 me
1: being mauled by a cat. Nothing new in that. People have seen it before.
0: <laughs> oh, hello. There we go. What, what's, what's the cat's name? We should start with that first. The cat's
1: Dundee. We'll start with the cat. Dundee. He's better known than me. <laughs> Dundee kitten. Yeah. That's pretty good.
0: That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But um, Do you know
1: why? So he's uh, Dundee because that's where they used to make marmalade. And, of course, he's changing. Ah,
0: uh, okay. Yeah. I forgot about that, actually. I was thinking yeah. of Dundee cake but I don't actually yeah, know what was yeah. in it. Yeah,
1: no, he's turning into more of a Dundee K because he gets older, I'm afraid. No. <laughs> Solid cat.
0: Anyway, unfortunately, my cat does not turn up in videos nearly enough. <laughs> it's quite an antisocial cat that just sleeps most of the time. <laughs> but anyway, um, you are the CEO of Open UK. Now, I, I can't honestly remember if I actually mentioned Open UK from some FOSTEM coverage a few years ago, but I haven't counted you before, but what is Open UK and what are you aiming to accomplish?
1: Yeah, we're the industry organisation for the business of open technology as opposed to open source software on its own. And that's open source software, hardware and data. Mm-hmm. And we bring the three together as the three opens and we are about the business of open technology. And that means that we don't simply focus on homegrown organizations, Mm -hmm. but we focus on everybody in our geographic area, wherever in the world they've come from. If they're based in the UK, we try to bring them together as a community. And with that open community, that open technology community, we seek to have influence on laws and policies Mm -hmm. so that we can make the UK a great place to do open And the third sort of pillar of what we do is skills development and learning. Mm -hmm. And We've done a lot of work with kids' courses over the last couple of years. This year we're working on a MOOC, a massive open online course with one of the UK universities, something that we think will benefit engineers, Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, and legal and governance people in the open source space.
0: So it sounds sounds interesting. I actually just came back from KubeCon and there were some discussions around this as well. Uh, sort of uh, different aspects of it. This intersection, I guess, between open source projects and business, and that mm-hmm. may mean non-open things, but also, you know, uh, companies making money from from open, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah. I think it's an increased conversation. Let's let's maybe clarify some of the the organization's aims, just to kind of make it clear mm-hmm. to people who are listening. What exactly this could mean? I have a I tend to have a fairly sort of engineer heavy audience, and they're probably more familiar with like mm-hmm. open source foundations, which is not quite what this yeah. is. So, yeah, what are your aims?
1: uh to make the great place, the UK, a great place to do open technology, and so our purpose is UK leadership mm-hmm. and international collaboration in open technology. Uh, You know, that's the formal defined purpose. Um, We are looking to increase the entrepreneurship in Open in the UK to encourage people to build more open technology businesses We have an entrepreneur-in-residence whose team you will have encountered, no doubt. He wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Recently had a baby, but his team at Jetstack were in force at uh, KubeCon, Matt Barker. And Matt's our entrepreneur-in-residence who works with a number of founders, many of whom have worked around the Kubernetes space um, as a founders forum. And this year they've run eight sessions. They've got another couple to go before Mm -hmm. they're finished looking at uh, the business of open and how one runs open businesses and scales them and hires people into them and looks at revenue generation and all that sort of good stuff. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of work around that kind of piece. We've done a a lot of legal work where we've responded to laws and policies. Um, That's focused a lot on both security and sustainability in the last 12 months in particular, So we joined OpenSSF about a year ago. Mm -hmm. We responded to the Biden ordinance back in May last year, looking at security and calling for our software bill of materials. Uh, On that front, we're going to be running a few sessions through July, both for government people in the UK and anybody who wants to join. And then on the sustainability side, last year we had a very large event at COP26, an -hmm. Open Technology for Sustainability Day And I think it's the first of its kind. We'll be holding the second one as a sort of COP26 plus one, looking at what we did last year, what we've achieved since and what we need to do to keep that momentum going. And that will be in Wales, I think, on the 12th to 14th of October. Mm -hmm. Um, Last year, we delivered a blueprint for a data center of the future using open technology. Um, That's now sitting in the Eclipse Foundation. This year we're working on one for EV charging. And we're also working, uh, we'll come to the survey, I guess, in a minute. But we're also working not only on the economics of open source, but the societal values. And what we're hoping is that by October we'll have V1 of societal value metrics to share with the world, mm-hmm. uh, we're collaborating quite extensively on those at the moment. Looking at the the literature that's already out there, looking at the Sustainable Development Goals, and trying to work out how to build that. So uh, V1 should be public around that event in October, and then we'll be looking to take that even more broadly to get collaboration around V2 onwards. Cool. So we do all sorts of different yeah, pieces, no, no, but no. it all comes together to to focus on the, the value and the, the place of open in our society. Yeah,
0: it, it's a very relevant discussion at the moment. And this, this software bill of materials was something that kept coming mm. up at KubeCon. Um, yeah.
1: uh You see, that's an interesting one for me because I'm an old lawyer, right? (sighs) I was a lawyer for 25 years and I joined Canonical at the beginning of 2008. So for Mm. five years while I ran the legal team there, I was very, very engaged in what was happening around governance. Uh, And, you know, I've kept doing that since. I've got a book on it coming out in September, October but uh, one of the things is the Software Bill of Materials. There's a, an international standard already in place called SPDX, oh, really? uh, which has come from Linux Foundation. You may have come across that. I think I've come across the acronym without ever uh, actually... Yeah, I can never remember it. what it stands for. But it, it, it came about, you know, 10 years ago, we were at an open source summit in Boston, and a couple of the guys from Motorola had come up with the concept. Yeah. They took it to Linux Foundation. So it's not like somebody's waved a magic wand and suddenly the open source communities have yeah. produced an S bomb standard. This has been ten years yep. in the making. Yep. These conversations are now mainstream. But I suppose as nerds in that space have been looking at yep. open source governance and yep. good hygiene. And for there have been businesses plus. around
0: it. I've interviewed a couple of businesses yeah. that have done this for some time and, and some f- Like companies have also existed for some time, mostly around the legal side, you know. Uh, I worked for an enterprise-heavy company here for a little while, And that was one thing that always made their open source projects take forever. A developer would make something in two days and then it would sit with Mm -hmm. legal for months whilst they audited all the third-party plugins and extensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what this
1: gets rid of, right? So I used to spend a lot of time doing contracts for open source. And of course, you're not actually doing a contract for open source. You're doing a contract for services around it Mm. because the open source is already licensed. But one of the, the things that people understandably because they're managing risk, want to know is what are you giving us? Yeah. And we used to have to put that together in multiple different formats yeah. for different customers um, so that they understood even although that, you know, that it was services that you were selling really. Yeah. Or a subscription, I suppose. But you know, getting that standardization in place is the important piece. It takes away a lot of the the pressure on the vendors, on the distributors. And, of course, if you look at something like Debian, you know, they, they, as a project, they do that anyway. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And they you know, all and do. a well-run I project always will. They, they all do. It's just those cascading levels of dependencies yeah. that I think have made this uh, more relevant exactly. now. And they all sort of have, I guess they have their own standards. I don't know. It's hard to say mm. without digging in. You know, you, you know the, the machinations of it all. But… Mm-hmm. what's underpinning it and, and why it's that way, I think is probably a bit of a mystery to yeah. of people. <laughs> so
1: Kate Stewart, who, who runs SPDX at the Linux Foundation, is someone that I've known, I don't know, at least a decade, mm. but she was a release manager at Canonical. Yep. So obviously dealing with that Debian piece and as somebody who really understands the machinations that you're referring to, you know, the bits that lawyers like me would <laughs> never actually see the nitty-gritty of. And I, I think the whole thing is very much being designed to allow the engineering piece to automate as much as possible. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, this is a this is a topic that's very much on my mind at the moment. But let's let's maybe not go down too far that uh, that literal rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, firstly, I'd just like to ask about the organisation. I think when I first encountered you was when it had just
1: begun, so
0: sort of three years ago, roughly. Is that about right, or?
1: Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I took the organization on as CEO at the end of November, beginning of December. So almost exactly two and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And at that time there was a company and a website. Okay, So I sort of built it from there. Um, I think it sort of existed in informal iterations before that. Okay. But really, you know, I think in the structure and the format that it is now, the organization I'm describing to you today, we're two and a half years old. Okay. So we've had a pretty fast trajectory yep. through lockdown. Yeah,
0: And uh, are there any other equivalent organizations around the world or I guess organizations that do similar activities? Or yeah, not nice?
1: exactly. So there are in some countries across Europe, organizations that look at open source software they tend to focus only on the the homegrown organizations they don't have the broad remit that we have and they don't focus on open technology just mm-hmm. open source software um so what we've been doing actually is we're working with people in a number of countries who are looking at building similar organizations okay. and trying to support them in doing that i just had a call with somebody in kenya mm-hmm. this morning who wants to build one there cool.
0: yeah no that's a uh, that's actually uh, I think uh Kenya and uh, Nigeria are probably two countries that would be uh prime for these sorts yeah. of organizations at the moment, massively developing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um yeah, actually another another <laughs> rabbit hole. Let's 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 um let's focus on you've just oh no, you haven't just announced. I think it's been running for a little while, but uh oh no, no, tenth of May. I've lost track of yeah. what date it is. But two weeks ago And running for about another two weeks, the Open UK State of Open Survey. So, firstly, I guess, is this the first time you've done this survey?
1: No, it's the second. So, we did one last year, which was really interesting, and we learned a lot from doing it. Hmm. Um, We got some amazing stats out of it. We took the survey as the second phase of a report last year, and we did a report in three phases. The first phase we looked at a, a literature review and we took the all the reports that existed or that we could find on open source that included the uk mm-hmm. and we cut that data where it was available for the uk um pre-brexit obviously we weren't separated as much in data yeah. and even now um particularly us organizations don't think to separate us out which is a bit frustrating and i'm encouraging them to do it more but we took the data we could get for the uk from people like cloud native mm-hmm. And we we looked at where we sat globally. We mm. also did quite a lot of work with GitHub on data. Okay. And then we um we used the economic formulae that the European Commission had come up with, or the, the people paid by the European Commission had come up with, and we created a calculation which is very much focused on sort of total cost of ownership, lines of coding, number of developers, and we we got a a, a sum of about 42 billion. per annum contribution to GDP in the UK, which is about 20% of the digital economy. Wow. Um, I suspect it's probably three times that if you look at real economic value. And what we've started to do is shift more to looking at broader ways of measuring it and trying to work out how we do that. So our survey this year picks up on what we did last year on the economics and carries that forward. But as we developed into our third phase last year, so phase one, literature review phase two adoption looking at the um the, the economics of it mm. phase three we started to shift and we started to look at values plural okay so the non-economic values the skills yeah. development the diversity the increased innovation the pace of innovation those kind of things and this year we're bringing them into a single uh, report which will be published at the beginning of june The survey will run to the 12th of – beginning of July, sorry, the report will be published. The survey will run to the 12th of June, and we will have a combination of thought leadership pieces, case studies. And last year we had some phenomenal case studies, and we had one from Starling Bank talking about how the whole business is built on open source. Um, We had them across quite a wide, diverse range. This year what we're looking at is the journey – So the the change in the survey questions is designed to show how those who consume, contribute or distribute in their products and services, open source software, how they go on a journey. And we're we're measuring, you know, how long have you been doing each Mm. of those and then we can correlate it to things like OpenSSF or using an S-BOM mm-hmm. or being part of Open Chain with licensing governance mm-hmm. and you know, being part of Open Invention Network and in that defensive patent pool, the, the things that are standard, good housekeeping, good hygiene in a sophisticated open source organization, quite a lot on security, quite a lot on skills development. So it's been quite a big leap, but what we've done since last year is every two months we've been holding a, a session with all of those people around the world who do reporting.
0: Okay.
1: And we've been trying to work with them to understand who's doing what and how they're doing it. Open, it would be really like great. open
0: technology reporting or, or...?
1: This is specific to software, okay, so and software, it would be yep. really great if we could get to a point where everybody was doing something similar so that we could base, you know, we could really compare... What's going on country by country? Yeah. We could compare topic by topic, and you know, you might see that the US is ahead on something, or Europe's ahead on something.
0: Yeah, yep. I'd imagine that would be the case. I sort of two follow up questions there. One with the 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 other value. Um, mm. I remember this from when I used to work in sustainability, and you'd have these reports on you know the value of forests and the value of mm-hmm. common assets and things like that. Um, how will you will you also measure those other the other value in monetary terms or in in some other way?
1: So Christian Perino is our Chief Sustainability Officer and there is a piece of me that thinks if we measure it in money that governments will understand it better. But there's absolutely no way he's going to let me do that. So it has to be measured in different ways and that's what he's currently leading an advisory board working on and there's quite a diverse group of people uh, we will see where that gets to.
0: Mm. Okay, because I, I sort of thinking, especially when you go go beyond software, you're talking about hardware. I don't know if you also cover things like open standards, and you know, there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of obviously impact there on people's lives. That
1: yeah.
0: I think some people are aware of. You know, something like the the Android phone, which has elements of open openness in it, but then mm-hmm. probably even other extremely common things that you don't even think about that.
1: Um, well, there's not, a, a yeah. great one. There's Mojaloop, which is a platform that spun out of the Gates Foundation. And Moja Loop is a payment platform mm. and it's rolled out in some African countries where it's not just, it's that, um, you know, the old saying, and I say old because it's give a man a fish and you, yep. you know, you give right. him a meal, teach a man to fish and he fishes for life, teaching people those skills and creating community the value of that is not economic. It's way no. beyond that. And yeah. that's the sort of stuff yeah. that we're looking at measuring in society.
0: Yeah. And especially that sort of skills sharing and things like that. Yeah.
1: Um, in I mean, dif- there's a couple of great economists. I don't know if you know, uh, Mariana Mazzucato and Kate Raworth, who are both in the UK. Okay. They've written amazing books looking at the, the alternative economics around oh. this with um, yeah. Mission Economics as Mazzucato's book and then yeah. uh, Donut Economics, which you've probably heard of with Kate Raworth. I, I really interesting. I'm
0: not 100% sure. I might have heard them through some podcasts.
1: <laughs> yeah. What's really interesting is that in different points of both books, they start to talk about open source. Yeah. And how yeah. that matches with the, the you know the journey that they're sending you on.
0: Yeah. Oh, no, this, this, this is kind of what's always got me interested in open source in the first place and where I start to have lost interest a little recently because I've got increasingly frustrated with the way it's just become – sort of commoditized and a marketing tool by a lot of businesses. But, again, I think that's a much broader topic. So, <laughs> so let's, let's sort of park that one aside. Um, do you have any any inclination, any inklings of what do you think the survey is going to reveal this year that might be different from last year?
1: I think this year the questions are quite different. So we should do the year-on-year economics. Mm. But I think what it will really show Is this journey, is the the, the state of our open source consumption and contribution aligned to our sophistication in practices and good practices Mm -hmm. around both technology and governance procedures and policies? So I I really hope that we'll be able to demonstrate quite a lot lot but how you know, that's shifting and that those practices start to go in place as organisations um, mature in their utilisation of open.
0: And how, how have you found that previous, well, last year's report and other things you're mm. doing has, has influenced... Government, regulatory bodies. Massively. Okay, good. Okay, cool. Massively. Oh. And
1: it, it was great. So DCMS have been really engaged with us, Department of Culture, Media and Sport mm-hmm. here in the UK, who do our software and our data policies. And they've been, you know, really open and engaged in the process. We've done some training with them. Um, they, they said to me last year that the report served to highlight an area that might have been overlooked. Mm-hmm. And I think there's almost a a problem here that we've had these amazing policies in the UK on an open source first basis, long ahead of almost anywhere in the world since uh, 2012, uh, since GDS, since Francis Maud worked on that. The issue is they didn't have any teeth and we've seen a change in government in the meantime and that change in administration means that things that were being driven forward by one often aren't by the next. And I think there's often not just in the UK, but everywhere, a governmental misunderstanding when they look at particular areas of technology as the exciting new things, whether it's the web, whether it's mm. blockchain, whether it's AI, which is the, the current favored child. I think they forget that it's all built on open source and actually you know having those open source skills and making sure that we're teaching the right skills to young people as they're going through the yeah. education system and we're not right now okay but trying to get that happening is critical
0: that was going to be a question um i have some friends in the uk who work in education and i mean mm. i learnt pre-university because <laughs> that's different shall we say mm-hmm. i learnt you know my my uh, computer studies classes were a long time ago And we pretty Mm -hmm. much primarily learned Microsoft Office skills. Um, And I was unpleasantly surprised to hear that it hasn't changed very much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and that's what we've been pushing for. So we've created Key Stage 3 is sort of 11 to 15-year-olds, a level below GCSE. We've Mm. created a couple of courses for them. Cool. We had intended to work on an apprenticeship module this year and got slightly sidetracked because of the, the opportunity to build a MOOC. So we're hoping yeah. that the MOOC will be delivered this year. Yeah. I think an apprenticeship knowledge module probably next spring. And over time, we would like to see a GCSE in open as well.
0: Yeah. It, I mean, it's funny because you think like projects like um, – this, this, this dates me – projects like the BBC Micro, of course, years and years ago, mm-hmm. and then more recently Raspberry Pi come out of the UK – Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah, We've got a huge contribution. So, the thing that we're not sure of is brilliant engineers. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we, it's so Alexis Richardson, the CEO and founder of Weaveworks he's one of the people our kids courses uh, each each of the two courses are 10 lessons mm. they're about 10 to 20 minutes long each they're animated they're quite good fun they use a glove that's been created by Imogen Heat, the singer okay. so yeah, yeah, you know yeah. they appeal to girls as well yeah. I always start moving my hand around as I talk about it because a lot of it is you know gesture related yep. Yep. and it starts teaching kids in block code and um, called make code and then yep. it moves on to JavaScript yep. and Python and the second yep. course yep. and the second course each lesson is one of the 10 open source definitions um, themed along with the sustainable development goals. Uh, so it's teaching you to code and teaching you what these mean at the same time. But uh, Alexis, the, the, the course then has a, a magazine that goes with okay. it and that features different people. And Alexis is featured in there talking exactly about that BBC micro and yeah. that was how he got into it. And it's trying to make it real for people, trying to give them not necessarily role models that you would hold up on a pedestal, but role models as in people like Les Rice, Justin yep. Cormack, yep. Alexis, who've come out of the UK, who've had these incredibly successful international careers And how did they get into it? And what is it they really do? Because I I don't think we share that enough with kids.
0: No, it it almost does not feel a very uh, British uh, thing to do in some respects.
1: (laughs) To celebrate success. No, exactly. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. (laughs) And it's not very British.
0: Especially, you know, compared to our uh, larger English-speaking neighbour to the... To the whichever direction you Mm -hmm. want to look, much better at uh, it. (laughs) But we're
1: really bad at it, and that's the thing that I've discovered. So, in setting up Open UK, I was told by someone at the working with the commission that they had used a figure of four hundred and ninety thousand developers pre-Brexit in the EU and in they reduced the EU? it to 26 yeah they okay. reduced it to 260 on Brexit.
0: Wow. So yeah. the
1: scale of the development community exists in the UK. Yeah. So I kinda knew that early stage what I didn't realize and if you have a look at our openuk.uk UK website you'll see the people volunteering in different mm. roles. Cool. Mm. I didn't realize the scale of leadership based here. Yep. 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 And pretty much yep. our organisation brings those leaders together. Yeah.
0: And you have a few other key organisations like Canonical as well, of course. Oh,
1: totally. Um, totally. I mean, I spent five years there. Yeah, SUSE, yeah. a lot of the SUSE management yep. team is in the UK. I know Weaveworks. mostly the German ones,
0: but yeah. And also WeWork's yeah. and and SUSE both also have offices here, so I kind of tend to think of them as German. Yeah,
1: but- <laughs> no, they're very British. There's huge British leadership in them. Yeah. It's funny, uh, Germany is number two yeah. in Europe in terms of contribution behind the UK. Yeah. And then there's a big leap between Germany and France. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who work with German businesses think about Germany. Germany's been the leader. Technically, we are. But I think those two are way ahead of the rest of Europe. Yeah. If you look at geographical rather than EU. Which is interesting. So I think there's well. probably a lot of alignment in the, the UK and, e- and Germany that we, we don't really have. I think have some about.
0: opinions on France, but that, that is getting vastly off topic. So, <laughs> <laughs> so having spoken to, to people there and things like that, I think Germany mm. very much has a culture of open and um, wanting to be able to know what's going on (laughs) in something. There's a culture of that, which comes from very, very many historical origins, I think. But there's a very large culture of hacker culture and stuff here, which um, I think really pushes that. Um, But, yeah. Okay, well... Post-survey, I encourage and, – and actually, I mean, um, you do – I'm on the first page of the survey. You do have a not-in-the-UK option. Um, yeah,
1: unfortunately, you get kicked out pretty quickly after that because right, we enough. really are focused on the U.K., I'm sorry. so um, And we don't want to get data. That no, doesn't no, help no, 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 anybody based in the geographic U.K., exactly. okay. wherever in the world you're from, wherever the world you, to, you work. To,
0: I will forward it to, uh, to, to my friends who are relevant in the, in the industry then. Um, but outside of the survey then what's kind of what's next i think you mentioned a few things earlier but what are some of the broad yeah. things you're working on in the next few months
1: after yeah. the yeah so the survey and the report the mooc which will come out later in the yep. year we have this open technology for sustainability day which will actually be a couple of days down in wales in october uh we will be launching our awards our third set of awards in, in early june and those will take place 30th november at the house of lords So we've got all of that going on. Um, We also have a program of ambassadors currently who are fairly senior leaders in the UK in open technology. We're going to be launching a second tier of that. There's a bit of a debate about what the name will be, but it will be some sort of developer advocacy or evangelism level. So we'll be built bringing a lot of younger people into the organization that way a lot of uh, not necessarily younger I suppose more early stage in their careers. and we're also about to launch international ambassadors. So if anybody's interested in working with us as an international ambassador because we're, we're we are a geographically focused organization. But we're very acutely aware that open technologies, open source software, it's all about international collaboration. And, you know, we need to keep those lines of communication open.
0: And that was my interview with Amanda Brock from Open UK. Head to their website to find the link for that survey and I'll also post it in the show notes. A couple of quick links from me. I mentioned quite a few things I'm working on ahead of the interview and ahead of the links, but a couple of others quickly here. I published to YouTube the edited version of my cloud development with GitHub Codespaces, hands-on video. And, of course, I didn't do a newsletter around it, but you can also find in the previous episode, my interview with Naptive, a sort of simplified Kubernetes environments uh, platform, which was also an interesting interview. Um, I have quite a lot of things I'm working on at the moment, but travel and and things like that have, have delayed them a little bit. But there's quite a lot to come very, very soon. So, in the meantime, uh, head over to chrisschinchilla.com for all my news, how to support me, etc., etc. And I'll be back soon with some more interviews. Thanks for joining me, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more about me at chrisschinchilla.com, where you can find show notes, sign up for my newsletter, and find all of my writing, games, work, and video links. There's also details on how to get in touch with me. And if you want to get even closer to what I do, join my Discord server for behind the scenes discussions and helping me produce my shows and work.